Here at GCSE Pod, we put the student and teacher at the heart of everything we do, from creating quality assured curriculum mapped content that you can trust, to tools and features that improve the working lives of teachers. In these times when everyone needs to rely on quality more than ever, GCSE Pod delivers peace of mind along with evidence of impact. We understand that along with safety, motivation and engagement are essential to keep everyone on the right track. Keeping students on task and giving teachers the confidence to deliver learning from wherever they are is a mission that we're proud to achieve time and time again. To find out more and be in with a chance to win a motivational day with CAM for your students, contact us quoting reference D2R. Paul Mundy Castle, how are you doing today? I'm good, thank you. Do you know what? <laughs> this is the first time I've been in the school since March. Wow. <laughs> uh, I'm in free schools on, on Friday, but yeah, so it's the first time being in the school since March. And I just want to say thank you for having me. How are you? How is things how, since lockdown? Are you enjoying it? Is it stressful? How's uh, life right now as a head teacher? Oh gosh, I don't do stress very well. <laughs> um, not very different, actually, because again, I think I, I speak about this quite publicly. We've been open um, during lockdown. School there was open go. and I literally been in school every single day. So for me, it's not much difference. Just getting the kids uh, back into their routines has been really, really useful. And it feels a bit more normal now, actually. Now the kids are back. Now the kids are back and, you know, you can start sort of telling them, tuck your shirts in and telling them which way to go. And have you done your your homework and it makes the school more real because the last couple of months it's been really difficult to function without young people physically yeah. in the building so i asked you um literally before the cameras are rolling i said do you get nervous before interviews and you said this is, no, this is what i do and you said <laughs> when you used to play basketball you got a big basketball background you said yeah. now that's nervous going up for a, a, a shot essentially yeah. um i want to dive straight into it yeah. You said 97. What was you doing in 1997? Oh, I was playing for uh, Great Britain um, at the university, World University Games. I was in Sicily. Fantastic experience. We were out there for a couple of weeks playing against all the best basketball teams in the world. The USA, Spain, you name it. Fantastic experience. And that's pressure um, when you play basketball. And when you play professionally at any sport, that mm -hmm. is pressure. Okay. So you mentioned 1997. You were playing basketball. Where was you? Uh, 1997, I was playing uh, for Great Britain at the World Student Games in Sicily, Italy. Okay. Uh, fantastic experience. We were over there for a couple of weeks playing against all the basketball powerhouses. Uh, you know, USA, Spain, you name it, we played against them. Really, really good competition. We finished sixth in the world at the time. Wow. So fantastic experience. And when you mention pressure, that's real pressure mm. when you've got to actually, you know, compete at that level, you know, against, you know, really, really supreme you said, athletes. You said universities. Does that mean you were playing D1 athletes? Yes. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, the previous uh, World Student Games, Allen Iverson was a starting point guard uh. Uh, for USA. So everybody who you see in the NBA, everybody who we played against is, was, was in the NBA they all ended up going into the NBA that season or the wow. following season so yeah for us it's the pinnacle of a career as a basketball player yeah did you play against USA of course yes I how did. was that talk to me um, actually quite intimidating in some ways because you sort of know their rep you know which universities they go to you've seen them on television you know we are quite a small country in terms of basketball mm. uh, basketball is seen as a minority sport in England so we don't get the exposure um, so you know who they are and you know what they can do and it's fantastic to challenge yourself against them you know I think mean, mm. we lost by about 28 points in the end but that was the closest I don't know it's one of the closest games bad. I had you know I mean we had a really really good team a lot of our players were out in America anyway so we had division one players in our mm. team Nice. I was actually I, I was educated here um, I was I went to university in England so I was one of only two players who got onto the team but wasn't in an American university that's also an achievement yeah. as well yeah it was yeah it did was. you not fancy playing in America Oh, I did. I had offers. I mean, at the point when I played for um, as a junior, we won the National League at Brixton. Brixton was a powerhouse um, in the late early 90s, um, late 90s. And I played for Brixton. So we got a lot of recognition and a lot of our players ended up going to the States. Uh, for me, I played a surrogate dad role because I had a younger sister who needed me here. Mm. And so that was the reason I didn't take up the scholarship wow. offers. But every summer I was at in America, sort of playing the circuit, That's going to camps. Cool. And that yeah. was amazing for me. Yeah. So um, once again, before the cameras are rolling, you said 
you're going to go home to Nigeria once it's all said and done. Are you born and raised in the UK? No, no, no. Not born and raised in the UK. I'm an African, true and true. I uh, was born in Nigeria. Okay. I, I've grown up all around Africa. I've lived in lots of lovely countries. I've lived in Zimbabwe. I've traveled extensively around Africa. I came to England when I was 15 years old. So okay, England wow. is a second home. You know, I didn't learn to speak English till I was 12 years old. Wow. So English is a third language, if I'm honest. Wow. So, yeah, no, it, what an achievement, yeah. even, say, coming to the UK when you was 15 and now being a head teacher of a secondary school. Um, that's amazing so talk to me a little bit about when you came here when you were 15 years old coming to a complete different country a lot colder I imagine oh Jesus I came we came in December 1988 when we came to England okay it was absolutely freezing you know I I, I hated it for so many years Um, and that's why everywhere I go I'm all covered up I've never got used to the weather because I wasn't born here and I've never sort of got used to that but yeah really different culturally very very different you know in Mm. Africa we had a big massive house we had servants you name it and then you come to England and you're in a flat with everybody living around you so that was really difficult to sort of of, um, understand and I was a football player in, in Nigeria and that was my, my sport I never played basketball before and uh, I remember going to a football trial and it was snowing and cold and I was like never again that's why I went to basketball because mm. it was indoors Indoors. that's the only reason wow. I, I opted to go and play basketball and then I met the legendary Jimmy Rogers and the rest is history in terms of taking us under his wing and yeah. coaching us not just about basketball but in life itself but that's also what sports teaches you and yeah. I've got American football kind of background and the coaches and the people I've been around, we used to play all the American army bases yeah. in Lakenheath and we'd go over to uh, Germany. RAF Lakenheath. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so, I've played there a yeah, few yeah. times. So it's like, a, it's like being in America, isn't yes, it? it? And is. it is yeah. amazing. So we had like Friday night light games and that was the American experience for me. And yeah, quite a few of my friends went and played D1, Boise State. One of my friends okay. went to the NFL, stuff like that as well. Um, so yeah, we played at quite a good level. We played for GB over in Serbia. But one thing it taught me was discipline. It yeah. taught me how to work hard. And it also taught me to have a dream, have yeah. a goal, yeah. have have something yeah. to focus on. Yeah. Um, but I want to quickly, because it's a passion of mine, and especially with everything going on um, in 2020, not just lockdown, but also Black Lives Matter and stuff. Of course. Can we cast our mind back to, when, when you say 1988, what was it like being a black African man coming to the UK at that particular moment in time? Um, how diverse was London at that moment? Yeah. Was it yeah. diverse? Was yeah. it... Yeah, if you can explain that, that'd be amazing. Uh, that's, that's going back in your memory bank. Actually, London's always been diverse. Historically, there's always been people from different cultures in London. Um, Af- it's cool to be African now. I mean, thank God. You know, <laughs> Stormzy, big up Stormzy. I used to teach him, actually, uh, when he was at Harry South Norwood. Um, you know, I think there, you know, there, there are lots of people who've made it cool to be African. And there was a time when, actually, if you were African, you know, you had a big accent oh, and people know. sort of made yeah. fun of you i remember going to school and wearing my gola shoes because my mom had bought me golas and i thought they were amazing you get to school and everybody sort of guns you because your shoes are are rubbish and they haven't got a name brand behind it so i think um acclimatizing to the country was very very difficult but thankfully i had a strong enough upbringing that i could sort of deal with that i didn't Mm. see it as bullying obviously now actually when you look back on it you were bullied mercilessly but at that at that point you didn't i didn't Mm. actually process it you know i just sort of got on with uh, what i was interested in um yeah so it was very different but as soon as i started playing basketball i had a reputation and people knew cherry can play and that's my nickname it was fine everybody sort of opened doors for you oh mm. he's all right he can play basketball so the pressure you know eased quite significantly but i i imagine it would have been very difficult for somebody else who didn't have that skill set mm. that's fascinating what would you say was the biggest kind of cultural shift especially coming over from being a teenager you yeah. know it must be it's a difficult time mm. isn't it it's a difficult yeah. time even if your environment doesn't change mm. and you may obviously being a head teacher now here in croydon um you may experience that with other younger people and mm. you've got that experience now what was the biggest cultural shift for you apart from the weather yeah yeah the weather you sort of you wrap up warm and you can sort of live with i think the biggest cultural difference for me was the houses okay i mean we lived in brixton summer late in the state big up summer late in the state <laughs> that's where that's where i grew up um but it was horrendous. I mean, leaving Africa where we had a fantastic family home and space. a garden and space and yeah. 
to come to a council estate where everything is insular and everything is inward facing and you know everything is concreted over i think that was very difficult wow. you know in terms of understanding that you know literally no green spaces where you know when you go into the middle of Samalayton, and it was a bit of a rat run you know in terms of which way do you go how do you get out and you know i i think that was difficult to mm. sort of cope with coming from very green very spaced out um africa especially i came from zimbabwe i lived in nigeria moved to zimbabwe which is actually um just had uh, taken independence from britain so they did it was pretty much as england was it was a lovely lovely country when we lived in zimbabwe so coming from there to here was just looking at the houses and the way people lived and flats, the concept of people living in flats, you know, something was alien to me. Um, so, yeah, that was probably the biggest adjustment. I, men- I mentioned it, um, well, a lot. Of, I've spoken about it before my background and growing up, I was kind of the only white kid in, in, my, in my friend group. So I'm, I'm really fascinated by different people's experiences. And when you say it wasn't cool to be African, oh, I remember my yeah. kind of African friends would pretend they was from the yeah. Caribbean, even though they wasn't yeah. at that particular yeah. moment yeah. in time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what what is your opinion on when a TV advert, right, and the only image of Africa they yeah. give yeah. is r- poverty? Yeah. What yeah. what what do you think to that? Is that right? Is that accurate? Is that no? It's definitely not accurate because you know I, I lived in Africa. My dad was a professor. My mum was a businesswoman. We had MTV. I was watching MTV at home from when I was young. So essentially, MTV cribs. M- well, MTV cribs wasn't there, but just <laughs> I remember watching MTV. We we were always on the lookout for when you know the, the music videos were launched because we had access. We had a satellite dish at home. I think it's not accurate, but essentially, I do understand that if you haven't been somewhere yourself. And then you will sort of follow whatever anybody tells you about it. That's why mm. I always encourage people to travel, see the world for yourself and actually don't prejudge until you actually get there. Um, so, yeah, I think it's it's not right, but I do understand why it's so prevalent. Mm. And I think more people, the more you go and see a place, the more you can challenge uh, the, the consensus of Got this is you. what it's really like. Love and that. I love to travel and it allows me to actually have a, a grander understanding. Where was you last weekend? Oh, gosh, I've traveled everywhere. Istanbul? <laughs> yeah. I mean, Dave I love, was just trying to ask yeah. you a question. What did you do? <laughs> last weekend you was like oh, yeah. i went to istanbul try, try and find anywhere that you can get away from and just be yourself and walk and, and experience new okay. things you know I, I extensively travel whenever i can get an opportunity i try to see the world once you open your mind it doesn't go back to the original dimension no no and you keep you you need to keep feeding your mind mm. and i think that's part of what i do as a school leader actually i always put myself in the footprint of my children that's my amazing. students and see, well, if that's not good enough for them, how do we change it? The more difficult and complex issues, how do we fund it, you know, essentially? Mm. But I've, I've found ways to make um, those things a reality for the young people at my school. And in every school I've ever worked in, actually, if I'm really honest, it, it, not even as a head teacher, as a head of year, I felt I was the best job in the world. And my job was to care for those young people and find a way to connect with them and make their school experience better. So what I'm doing now as a head teacher is a journey I started, you know, a long time ago, if I'm honest. Talk about, did you have much academic pressure on you from having African parents? Would you say your dad was a professor? Yeah. Uh, Your mum was a businesswoman? Yeah. Did you have high hopes? Yeah. (laughs) Was you pushed? Now, um... The, it, it, The pressure is unrelenting because in an African culture, education is everything. You know, I, I remember playing That's for Bricks amazing. and Topcats and we won the National League. My mum never came to watch us play. We played at the Bricks and Rec, which was literally a five-minute walk away from wow. Somerleyton. My mum wasn't bothered about that. Even playing for England, we used to go to France and play tournaments. None of that mattered. Uh, when you got your degree, it was like, yes, you've achieved something. So for African parents, so those who were raised in Africa education is everything and I think when you go to Africa you realize why Um, because back home it's a privilege to go to school because so many people can't afford to go to school or back then they couldn't afford state education isn't what it is now so I think they grew up with a mindset of if I can get my child to school and get them an education I've set them up for life so my mom was relentless she was right yeah yeah yeah. in a way it's it's a it's a it's a well traveled road if you are going to put yourself up and that just reminds me of do you have you ever heard of uh myron roll myron roll no so he he was a american football player and basically wanted to be a surgeon brain surgeon as well as he was skillful enough to go to the nfl 
and he was in the bowl game when he was playing D1. I think it was for Florida, and he was trying to do his Rhodes Scholar to come to Oxford. Okay. And basically, it was at the same time. So he'd done the first half of the game. He had this application process, and then he fl- got flew into the game and played the second half. Um, then he came over to Oxford. He delayed getting drafted, did the one year in so Oxford. So he could go to Oxford. Oxford, um, get his qualifications, and then he went to the NFL, played for the Titans for a couple of years, and then he's a brain surgeon now. Yeah, um, and, but he amazing. used to say that his parents would not give him the extra cookie if he scored a touchdown. They'd give him a cookie if he got A stars. Or yeah. whatever, you yeah. know, and th- that they've always enforced education, education, yeah. education. Um, I, w- I was naturally going to say, what do we do wrong in this country? But I don't think that's the right question. Yeah. Um, but let's talk about, and I was also going to say white people, but I go yeah. to a lot, a lot of schools where there are a lot of white people as well. Yeah. And they don't appreciate education as much. Yeah. I don't know whether it's a, a white person thing. I can't say that as broad, right? Yeah. Very broad. Um but why do people in the UK, generally speaking, don't appreciate education as much as, say, somebody who was raised in Africa? I said a lot of generalizations yeah. no, no, there. I think, Sorry, guys. I think, I think there's, a, um, there's a lot that's given in some communities, not earned so much. You know? um, and I think uh, our okay. young people are born into a very different life in Britain. And I think as a school leader, I have to understand that. That even if I think they should be acting in a certain way, it's all about their own lived experience. Yeah. So if you're born in a country where there's a path for you in terms of from um, cradle to grave, there is a support system, then essentially you might then feel, well, even if I don't do well enough here, I've got something to fall back on. Whereas in countries like in African countries, there isn't that fallback. There are different options. Yeah, exactly. The only option is to be successful or you're sort of desperate. Um, So I think that means our young people from a very early age sort of understand that. And I think we don't compete as much as we probably should. I mean, I think Australia is is a good example of that where they are a small country, relatively speaking, but they compete at such an aggressive level in everything Who they is do. That? Australia, Australia as a country, whether it's cricket or basketball or rugby, whatever it is they do, I think there is a competitiveness that comes with the environment that they sort of find mm. themselves in where it is quite challenging. I love that. Climate, weather, you name it. You've got to graft a little bit more. And I think for a lot of our young people, it's constantly trying to get them to understand they're in a world competition rather than I'm doing better than my friends. Not just school competition, yeah. not even a world competition, yeah. Yeah. just so a global competition. outside your city yeah. competition. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I say that all the time when I work with the teenagers I yeah. work with. So you're not just competing with your friends, friends. in this class. Yeah. Yeah. You're, competing with that. you're competing with the 10 others. Um, you're competing with the 10 other schools in this area. You're yeah. also competing with other cities. If you're in Liverpool, you've got yeah. Manchester, then you've got Birmingham, you've got all of these places. So you, what are you doing to separate yourself? Um, but anyway, 15 school, what age did you go to university and where? Oh, gosh. Um, do you want me to change that? Go on, change it if you want. And then I can take that question from, oops, it's a kid's play and this is my passion. It's basketball first. Okay, you can ask that question again, sorry. Okay, so um, obviously starting at 15, um, what age did you then go to university and what university did you go to? Um, if I take that back a stage, um, I was very lucky. We came at uh, Christmas to England and it meant we couldn't go into the normal route into school because school started in September. So luckily, even though I lived in Brixton, my parents found me a school in Wandsworth, which was, you know, a good six, seven miles away from where we lived. And I had to take the 133 bus every single day for an hour to get to school. But that was a godsend because Gravenie School was a fantastic school. Mm. And it really emphasized to me how much a difference a good school could make. Because my brother went to a school, Dick Shepherd, which is now closed because it was an awful school. Um, but I went to a good school. So the not only was my mom pushing me academically, but I went to a school that also pushed me academically. Um, so I did relatively well. At, uh, I found school work quite easy, if I'm honest. I just did it so I could get to basketball. Yeah. Mum wouldn't let me play basketball unless I was keeping up the grades at school. Um, f- first of all, I went to um, University of Greenwich, um, probably 1990, gosh, 92. Um, I only did one year at Greenwich because I just got on a course. I didn't actually apply for it. My girlfriend at the time, you know, made sure, you know, you got A-levels, mm. go to that university. And I realized after a year I was doing, you know, global studies. I didn't really enjoy it. And I, I then transferred to Middlesex University and did a yes, three-year. 
year uh, BA in historical studies, which is my real passion. I teach history. And mm. for me, history is just the most important subject on the curriculum. And I think everybody should Why? have to do history. Um, every single day you learn, you know, through the history lessons. I think it, they're not... interests you that? Let me change that. Let's be yeah. a bit more direct. What's your favorite subjects in history? Um, gosh, I'm, I'm lucky because I grew up in Africa where we learned African history. But coming over here, <coughs> um, learning about the Tudors, because when you come from Africa, exactly. you'd never heard about the Tudors yeah, before, never heard about yeah. the Stuarts, didn't know nothing about the Crusades. Um, uh, so I think all of the history we've learned in school here, for me, is, is relevant in terms of trying to map out how we've got to where we've got to mm. and always been able to trace it back to actually what was it like before? Why were these decisions made and how do you sort of change your own direction by being able to reach into the background and say, well, what did I learn from what happened there previously? Um, I love um, I love um, John Kennedy. Um, as a president, not as, you know, whatever he was as a man, but JFK and how he, he dealt with the Cuban Missile Crisis. It, mm. For me, it's why history is so important. The fact that we were at the brink of going into a, a nuclear war and he made a decision about dealing with something in a very different way, ignoring uh, a threat from Khrushchev. And I think I, I take examples like that from history all the time. Um, not everybody is a Nelson Mandela where the world remembers their story. You know, for me, my personal hero, Steve Biko, you know, all the civil rights fighters that came before and maybe didn't get that, yeah, that, that sort of exposure mm. um, that Nelson Mandela or Rosa Parks might have got. And history is cluttered with all of those characters. It's like, uh, think about um, Colin Kaepernick, who took the knee. Yeah. Everyone knows Colin, but they, uh, I can't even remember yeah. the guy's name. name that, who, who, who took the knee with him. him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's exactly that. And then that why allows, is that? Why does that happen? But that allows a young person to go back and say, well, I want to find out who that guy is. What is his story? So history just doesn't grow old, if I'm really honest. You can always go back and, and look at a story from a different dimension, you know, understand why the, the things happened the way they did. And mm. actually, why is that person not famous? You know, why is John Carlos remembered? And what about the Australian runner who also supported them in their in their black power uh, salute? So, yeah, I think that, that's why I love history. Yeah. No preconceptions. Um, if you can read, I think history is fantastic because it allows you to make up your own mind. And my history teachers always allowed me to do that. That's amazing. So, so, yeah, history for me is, you know, I think more kids should be exposed to it and not have to drop it as they go through secondary school. So playing at uni as well, basketball, obviously in, you went to obviously the university championships, yeah. um, which sounds like a, an amazing yeah. experience. Was you done with basketball after that? Oh, no, no. Um, I mean, basketball was in, is in the blood. I mean, I still play now on a Sunday, you know, where, where we can. We've not been able to play for a couple of months because of um, the sports centre, Flaxman. Yeah. It's not open. And that's right where I grew up as well. So I like going home every Sunday in terms of going back into Brixton and, and Camberwell. Um, but now basketball, I played professionally. I signed with the London Leopards. We played at an old London arena, which was amazing. Um, I mean, we, we had a really big team behind us at the London Arena. Sky Sports put a lot of money into basketball at, the, at that point. We were always did on television. Like, um, what's his name? He, he unfortunately passed away, did the NFL commentary. Uh, oh, Kevin Cadle. Yeah. Yes, Kevin Cadle was actually coaching when I played and my coach was Billy Mims. Kevin Cadle was a crosstown rivalry coach at the London uh, Towers. Okay. I was a London Leopard, never played for the Towers, always you know, on the other side. Um, so I played basketball. Eight years, I, I pursued a dream, played basketball, uh, traveled quite a lot, um, played out in Portugal, played in South Southampton. I played for the Solon Stars. I, I won the um, league title with Solon Stars. I was actually a season MVP uh, you know, at my diminutive height. Even with people... <laughs> People like Alan Cunningham and Colin Irish, obviously at the twilight of their careers. Um, Masai Ujiri, who's now the general manager of the Toronto Raptors, was uh, one of my wow. teammates at the uh, Solon Stars and one of my, my so close it's friends. So safe to say you was a good player then? Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah, well, I, was, I was a point guard. Looking a bit ripped back then, yeah. I see. Yeah. Um, is it safe to say that... As far as basketball players go, you're not particularly tall. No, I'm five, I'm five ten on a good day, and um, I was always the smallest on the team. But so, what separated you from everybody else? Why did Paul manage to become an MVP? Yeah. Why did Paul manage to play against United States in the championship? <laughs> why Why did you manage to do that? Being five foot ten, um, surely there's many barriers and challenges. Oh, yeah. yeah. What separated you from everybody else? 
I think you you have to have some self-belief. I mean, I, I was very lucky. Jimmy Rogers, who was my coach as a youngster, and then Paul Ambrosius, um, who was absolutely amazing, they they put a lot of confidence in us. They said it didn't matter about your height. Um, I remember Amber always saying, I'm preparing you to play for anybody's team, not just for Brixton. And so they taught us the fundamentals. And if you've got the fundamentals, you can negate the height in that. Because basketball, if you can pass, dribble, shoot, play defense, understand teamwork, you can pretty much cope with, you know, what about any mindset. Level. Yes, I think coming from Brixton, the mindset is there. I think if you're if you were brought up in South London, in the parts of South London that I grew up in, then you learn to be a fighter. So when you get on a basketball court, and especially when you've got the tools and your coach is telling you, that guy is six foot five, but if you sit on his legs, he can't jump. If you box him out, he can't jump. All of a sudden, you don't feel intimidated no. by somebody who's six five. No. And they invited us. Um, they, they encouraged us to invite contact. So even though basketball is a non-contact sport. Well, it's a contact sport. Yeah, really, we didn't mind it? being, some people do mind being hit. You get yeah, lots yeah. of people, oh gosh, I'll play outside and I'll just shoot from the outside. Other people are like, I'm coming inside. If yeah. you're going to foul me you're going to foul me um so i think we had a different mindset in brixton and we won a lot as youngsters and i think the more you win the taller you grow so even if physically you're only five ten that's, that's probably why i'm not very tall yeah yeah you, you win, <laughs> we win a lot it stays with you okay so when you as said you played professionally for quite a while after yeah. um did you work at that time? Was you being a teacher at that time? What, no, did, no, so you no, just no. I, I when I played basketball, I mean the commitment. I mean, if you play professional sports, the training is the issue. People see the game at the weekend and basketball. You'd have basketball, a game Wednesday and they, Friday. Don't they play like three games yeah. a week? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's a practice. You got to. I mean, when I was with the Leopards, sometimes you'd practice twice a day. You'd practice in the morning and in the afternoon. So getting a job around that, it's not very doable. What I did do was I. I went into a school in East London and I did some coaching okay. uh, because you had free time. I mean, you'd go back to the flat and just sort of zone out until practice again. Mm. And so I was doing some coaching in a school and um, Bow Boys, Bow Boy, Bow Boys School in East London. And they, um, I didn't realize at the time they were giving me all the naughty kids. So mm. whenever I went in there to do a basketball session, I'd have 20 kids not realizing that these were the 20 kids who they couldn't have in lessons mm. because they were so naughty, but they gravitated to me and I found it really easy to work with them, maybe yeah. because basketball was the bridge. Um, but the PE teacher there kept telling me, you've got, you know, you're really good with these kids. Have you ever considered sort of mm. teaching or coming in and being a PE teacher? Yeah. Um, and before I went to Portugal, I had a contract to go to Portugal in 2001. And before I went, I signed a contract. I was going to go to Portugal. Um, I, I, I don't know what moment it was, but I felt I needed something to fall back on because I thought if I go to Europe now, I'll probably be four or five years over there playing basketball. I'd already been to the team. I'd already sort of signed a contract. But then I saw an advert to sort of do your teacher training. And I thought, well, let me just get this done because I had a university degree in history. Mm. And that way, when I came back from basketball, I would have that to fall on because I've met a lot of basketball players and they play far too long where somebody's you know, 37 years old and they're yeah, still playing yeah. basketball. And you're thinking, well, because they can't do anything else. Mm. And I didn't want to be in that boat. The African in me, I think, mm. didn't want to end up like that. So I, That's amazing. I got the team to give me a one-year break where I could go to university. So I went to Kingston University to do my... Um, my PGCE and I thought it would just be do the PGCE and then go off and play again until I realized you had to do a year as an NQT and uh, I, that then sort of threw me a little bit because I realized the person I was if I didn't do this NQT year now I probably wouldn't do it no. um so and I went into it went into a very difficult school as my first school in um, Lewisham, St. Joe's Academy. First school in the country, I think, to become an academy um, because it was such a terrible school, but I absolutely loved it. It was the best grounding for me. I spent one year there as an NQT history teacher. I then spoke to the head teacher because I was going to go off and play basketball because uh, I'd secured another contract and he wouldn't let me go. He, he had me in a room, locked me in his office and he said, you are wow. the best person for these kids. Predominantly black boys, 600 black boys in Lewisham, and I remember him actually swearing at me. And um, I'll never forget the conversation with um, Peter Stickens, a great guy. He said, if you want effing teach these kids, would you effing think we'll teach them? They're your effing kids. And he came from a good place. Mm. And I went home and I reflected and I was like, well, he's right. 
these are black boys who need a role model. I am that role model. Mm. I've spent a year getting to know them. And I came back and met him the next day and he, he offered me a job as a head of year. And I was like, what's that then? You know. Yeah. So in my second year of teaching, I was he elevated. Knew what he was doing. Yeah, he, he, he sort of saw something in me, like my basketball coach had seen something in me. Do you regret that now? Uh, absolutely not. I think um, this calling is bigger than the basketball because I realized with the basketball, um, it's a fleeting moment in your life. And even if you did it and you stretch it out for 10 years, even David Beckham at some point moves off the limelight and it's about the legacy you leave behind. Um, I've had the opportunity to teach, reach so many young people. And if some of them have gone on to have fantastic careers and do amazing things. And I think you can't do that with basketball. With basketball, you touch them for the minute while you're playing and they pretend they're you. And I was incredibly popular. Every team I've ever played for, I've always been an MVP because the fans can gravitate to me. You're five foot ten and you're scoring all these points. Mm. I was uh, probably in, in 2001, I led the country in scoring in all four divisions in England. Wow. And that's normally something that's reserved for Americans. I averaged mm. 33 points that season um, playing for Worthing um, in the in the uh, Division One. So I was always an aggressive scorer, you know, and I could run a team. And I think basketball gives you that moment. But being a teacher, being of able course. to touch lives is absolutely amazing. You mentioned role models. How important is role models? Do role models have a bigger impact than we think? Because there's a lot, there's not much academic research really around, yeah, around role models. What's your opinion? What is your perception? Um, and yeah, what is your experience? I think it's more about people around you, whether you call them role models or not. I mean, whatever is semantics, what word you, you choose to uh, describe them. But I think every young person growing up needs to have a set of young of people around them that they can take bits from. And if you are surrounded by negative influences, mm. then you can't blame the child in the middle if all they do is repeat what they see. If you live in a council estate where everybody is looking at how can I make a quick buck? What can I do? Yeah. Then you might pick up those traits. But if you were lifted from that and put in a different environment, then you might pick up different traits. So I think it's a bit like Trading Places, the film with Eddie Murphy, where actually he, he was down and out and they put him in a different position and he elevated because the, the position made a big difference. So I think I, I take that quite seriously, mm. that young people are looking at me, the way I act, the way I talk, the way I dress, the way I deal with them. And I think the more they can take positive traits away from you it enhances whoever else oh, you're taking 100%. positive things from you know because yeah it's so important um just even growing up and it wasn't until i kind of met my wife and she came from a complete different place yeah and all her friends parents are all together they've been married for 20 yeah. plus years and not one of my friends parents are together not yeah. my parents not together yeah. and there's so that's not your normality no yeah. it wasn't well, my for normality, her it was hers. it wasn't yeah. i didn't realize actually how much of an impact that actually had yeah and also the advantage that um it does have and that doesn't that doesn't go to say that okay single households uh you know um, are no good but every situation is different and I think the more people as you said you have yeah. around you you can learn from well, yeah. um, the better it is and environment is absolutely key being younger I had many friends who, who ended up going to prison and they're still doing certain things like that now yeah. is because yeah. they, they might go to prison they might sit there two three years think okay I'm going to change but then they come straight back yeah. out into the and same the environment is still they're not in there. The, does that make sense yeah. for me I had to move yeah. to a complete different city um, to try and get out, out of, of that it, yeah. and sport American football was yeah. the being around people who played, yeah. they all had goals of yeah. scholarships and all of this. Should convey about. Yeah, so yeah. It, it changed everything for mm. me. Um, but I love, yeah, I love that for sure. Um, so you're a head teacher now. Um, I don't want to go through your whole journey, yeah. but as a head teacher, how many schools you've been ahead of? Uh, this is my second school as a head teacher. Actually, if I'm, I was a head teacher at um, 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 Richmond Park Academy, my first headship. Um, fantastic. Got that job in 2016. Um, after a year um, and a half of leading that school, I was made an executive head teacher by the trusts. So I was given oh. other schools to support. And that became, uh, you know, you're sort of stretched because you're then sort of spreading your time around the, the different schools that you're supporting. I mean, I remember going all the way up to Leeds to support a school wow. uh, in Leeds. They were supporting the school in, in, in North London. So wherever they needed you to go and, you know, mm. sort of troubleshoot and see if you could help, that was fine. And then they 
permanently put me over Richmond and Bexley Heath and I did that for a year and then actually I, I, I missed just being in one school because for me the ambition is to make that school magical and to do that you really need to be I in can, the school I can see that though, every day even, even you just saying that I can kind of see how that wouldn't fit your personality yeah. because yeah. even the, the way you walk around the school the relationships you have yeah. even with yeah. like your members of staff yeah. it means a lot yeah. it means even everything. like your attitude of us walking in you're so you're laid back but yeah. you're 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 very precise. You know what you want. Right, you know yeah. what you're doing, and you know your vision. I think that's so powerful because yeah. it's it's kind of like that. Self, it's like confidence, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's amazing. But where does that confidence as a head teacher come from? So if you became a head teacher in 2016, yeah. you haven't really been doing it that long. No, no, no. Um, where does that where does it come from? I think just being a good teacher, first and foremost. I think when I was a teacher, I was the best at it. That's how I felt. I, I didn't cut any corners. I planned my lessons meticulously. I made sure I served the kids um, who were in my class. I won a national award in, um, gosh, when was that now? 2005, Teacher of the Year in London. And I think those oh, things, yeah, those things help to actually, <laughs> ju- they, they sort of help to give you more encouragement to do the right things. Okay. Because if you do the right things, I've always believed the rewards will find you, mm. you know, because you're consistently doing the same thing. I think I'm no different now than I was as a head of year. The only wow. difference is as a head of year, I had 120 boys and a very small budget. Now I've got 1,200 kids and a bigger budget, but essentially I'm still personalizing the offer. For instance, this year for the first time, I'm sending 12 of my students out to do a college course on every Monday day off doing a level one course. Wow. I mean, it's not going to count for the school, but it's going to count for those kids. Wow. It means in two years time, they can move on to a level two course in construction, in motor mechanics, in hair and beauty. But if I'd kept them in school that whole time, they might be sitting in a classroom not making the progress and not connecting to that subject. So I've always treated headship as I did ahead of year. Hopefully, the promo video will probably be out before we release this. Yeah. Obviously, you showed it us before and you said this school is more than just, you know, an exam factory. Yeah. Um, Why is that important? Because let's be honest, there's a lot of pressure as a head teacher, right? You've got to get your grade. You've got all of these different things and the school's still somewhat a business as far as managing money and staff and delegation, all of these different things. How can you comfortably say with your chest, we're not an exam factory, we're putting putting our kids first, which is the right thing to do, but how can you say that so comfortably? Why is that so important? Because I believe it passionately and I think I've never ever run a school with Ofsted in mind. I think um, Ofsted only come in and they shine a light on your school and they're only going to see what what your school is. They're only going to, they're not going to make a judgment unless they have the evidence to make the judgment. So I think you should build a school that's the right school and if it's the right school, the kids will achieve and you measure achievement in different ways. One measure is obviously how many GCSEs have you got? That's only one achievement you might want to then say well how happy are the students in my school and if you do a survey where you've got great results but the the kids are saying i'm one out of ten in terms of happiness or the toilets are zero out of ten because they're very dirty then actually what type of school are you building so i think build a school that's right how can we change that view though how can we change that view where it's not just ofsted it's not just school grades because Obviously, a lot of head teachers, a lot of schools feel pressure Pressured, to promote yeah. that step, yeah. that promote that stuff. Yeah. But actually, the stuff you're talking about, yeah. this character development, yeah. this sports development, yeah. the mindset stuff, so they go on and yeah. become successful young yes. adults, yeah. is absolutely the right thing to do. Yeah. But a lot of people don't do it, yeah. and I get mm-hmm. why they don't do yeah. it. But how can we shine more of a light onto that stuff? I say, pick, you're doing the right yeah. thing. Now, I say, pick the right head teachers. I think it's very important. Um, head teachers arrive at that destination rather than sort of plan a career and say I want to be a head teacher after one year of teaching I think it's what I do is a vocation because I don't have the pressure of thinking well how do I improve this situation because just by thinking about a problem I can come up with I think a a good uh, number of solutions to help me solve the problem and I do think we've got to make sure the people who lead our schools are pastorally right and they understand that it's about the whole care the holistic care for young people for instance i've been at this school for one year Uh, when i started here we had paper plates plastic cutlery and we threw everything away into landfill this september we've retooled the kitchen proper stainless steel cutlery trays for young people plates the kids now at the end of lunch scrape their plates 
put their forks in one place, put their plates in another place. And tomorrow when it's washed, they use it again. It's their world now. So essentially, we've got to prepare them as best as we can for that. And if their little part of preserving the world is actually, I'm going to use my plate again because it's a solid China plate rather than this paper plate that's going to disappear after I use it once, then we've done the right thing. And I think the more you change the school environment for young people, the more you need to take the time to explain to them, why are we doing this? Of course, we can carry on using plastic plates and cutlery, but that's all going to landfill, you know. Mm. But by doing it this way and taking a little bit more time around my school now, we've got recycling bins everywhere. And that way the kids have a choice to make. Does this go to landfill or is this meant to be recyclable? They're doing it at home. So I think more head teachers are probably at that place where they're building the schools that is right for, for the young people. A lot of what you're talking about also sounds like culture too, right? Yeah. Yeah. How can you create this culture? When you come in as a head teacher, yeah. what is the first thing you do? I think you just have to be open. You've got to make sure your staff understand that, you know, you've got very, very high standards. I think that's non-negotiable. And I think the young people have to understand that. And I think if you're open to young people, I have young people come into my office all the time. I, you know, I am very open. I'm here early. I leave late. And I think the more young people get to touch you, speak to you, ask you questions, the easier it is to allow them to see what plans you've got. And I constantly share my vision with the staff, with the students. All around my school, we've got the Aspire logo everywhere because we want kids to be aspirational. We've mm -hmm. placed it everywhere we can. And I think that's equally important because that's the character we're building at the school. And I think when young people stumble, and every one of us will stumble, it might be you lose a job. It might mm -hmm. be you get a divorce. It might be you lose a parent. If we haven't invested in the character of young people, then every time they hit a roadblock or stumble, I think it's easier for them not to get back up. If they've been taught well in school to say, well, actually, sometimes things go wrong. I revised for this topic, but the exam was a different one. It happens. Give it your best shot. It doesn't mean you're not very bright because you haven't done well. So I do think schools um, are becoming better at developing the character and the hidden curriculum uh, for young people. So it's not just always about the uh, GCSE outcomes. Equally, they are important to open doors. But for me as a school leader, um, I'm more driven to make sure young people follow the right pathway. I don't think universities for everybody. Passionately don't believe that. I had a plumber come to my house um, the other day, charged me £60 for just coming out. Literally took 15 minutes to fix uh, the drains and he was off. And I was like, geez, that's a guy who's always going to be employable because we all need those auxiliary services. And I don't think schools should sort of have a two-tier system where, well, if you're mm. doing vocational, oh gosh, vocational. Um, yeah. And there was a time when it was mm. like that. And I think we probably, all schools should be moving away from that and giving equal value to whatever uh, we put in front of the young people. What challenges do you face as a black head teacher? Oh gosh. Um, but what, actually, yeah. let me ask you, mm. What barriers have you faced going into senior leadership roles? And then also, okay, we've talked about how diverse London is. What about when you travelled outside yeah. of London? To Leeds, for instance, yeah. to support a school. Yeah, right. Yeah. So um, what yeah. barriers have you faced? And do you think you would face a lot more if you wasn't in London? Yes, I think England is very complex. It depends on where you are, because essentially the number of black people in England in terms of percentage is not very high. So you're not mm -hmm. going to expect every corner of England uh, to have black people. What I found when I went to Leeds to support the school is actually um, the school community is very receptive. Mm -hmm. And I think once you've established expertise and you know what you're talking about and people can Google you and research what you've done, that gives them a little <laughs> bit of confidence. Is that your go-to? Listen, just yeah. Google me. Yeah, <laughs> not my go-to. They do that before you get there. Um, <laughs> but I think that helps. If you've got some expertise but in terms of barriers I, I still think we're not there as a community where we can think that everybody's treated equitably and fairly because i've fa faced barriers you know in every single school i've been in i mean even as a as a as a middle leader exactly. uh, where oh i mean i i i have strong memories of of senior managers when I've talked to them about applying for an assistant mm. headship, telling you, oh, no, that's not for you, Paul, because you're you're more pastoral. Like, teaching and learning shouldn't oh. be you. So and what does like, that mean? What did, what, that, what did that, that statement, what did that actually mean? Um, it, it meant we think you can look after the behaviour of the young people, but, oh, I don't think we can trust you with the curriculum and designing okay, what you. they will actually learn because that's the real, um, mm. um, the heaviest part of the school in terms of um, designing a curriculum that fits and is cost-effective and actually does what you want it to do. Coming from a basketball background, a five-foot-two white person 
telling me in a room, I can't do this, I should do this. First of all, I go to my mm. primal instincts. Yeah, you know, if course. I was in a basketball court, I would dust you up. So, <laughs> you know, essentially, that's how I felt. I was like, are you sure, cuz? Like, yeah. you know, I go back to who I was as a Brixtonian. Like, are you telling me I can't do that? Yeah. Justify it. And that drives you even more. I mean, that's, you know, that's one example. But essentially, there's been plenty. I mean, I've, I've had some horrendous experiences. But I think my mindset doesn't allow me to settle. But that's your mindset. That. That's my mindset. But that's not every no. black person. No. And some people will or... stop when they get that resistance or they face those barriers. And, it's, and I think that's why it's important for people like me to probably do more in terms of showing other prospective black managers that this is possible this is doable and for anybody that being ahead it's not actually that complex your heart's got to be in the right place no no it's not it's not that complex (laughs) it's it's not that complex i think you've got to have a lot of skills you've Mm. got to be able to juggle a lot understanding teaching and learning finances how you manage people what the law says uh special educational needs there's so many aspects of being a head teacher but i think if you're prepared to learn you get better with time you know like anything else you know you start off making lots of mistakes and in a couple of years you've sort of ridden out those mistakes Mm. but essentially if you are a good person with to work with a team and appreciate that everybody on your team won't have the same skill set and I think that's where basketball comes in because you might have a very tall guy who can't do anything but rebound and you're like well we need a rebounder but as soon as he gets a rebound you best be there to take the ball off them because if they dribble it it's going off their toes it's going off their knees and uh, schools are a bit like that so what can England slash schools organizations can do more of to let people from different backgrounds come up through the system, give opportunities, you know, yeah. what, what, what can people do more of? Yeah. Because <laughs> there is no doubt, only as from my experience, things I've seen, obviously having a white family, I've seen everything from all different angles, from yeah. everything my friends have been through, I've been there. Um, and it is very, very fascinating. And obviously even just the diversity dance on Britain's got talent, yeah. and they got 20,000 complaints. complaints. Yeah. yeah. I was saying to Dave on the way here, I yeah. was like, Imagine being that angry yeah. that you go out of your way to make a formal complaint. To make a formal yeah. complaint. Oh, we get it all the time. I get it all the time. How, yeah. how crazy and yeah. how ludicrous is that, right? Yeah. Just turn it off and watch something else. So, so straight away, that, yeah. that says it all, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. So I want to dive into the whole Black Lives Matter. No, I, I, like, think, I think there is a, a point. Um, you, you talk about my positive mindset. Mm. And I think this is one message I do like to share with young people boys especially when i come across them and i I feel they're hitting that wall where everybody's against them and nothing's going to work um i I think about the way we recruit um as a positive role model and somebody who's got a very strong mindset i think about where we've been given a chance to compete when you think about racing um uh, speed racing uh, lewis hamilton being undoubtedly the best racer but there's not a lot of black people who are racing but he's the top when you think about tennis a couple of years ago what does that mean um, in terms of being a world champion, if you look down the podium, it's always yeah, Lewis yeah. Hamilton. And then it's, you know, I, I watch um, F1. It's mainly white guys who drive, you know. Uh, when you yeah. think about tennis and the fact that Serena did what she did for the years she did it. And then you look, obviously now you've got Coco and different people coming up, but it's predominantly not seen as a black sport. When you look at um, Usain Bolt being the fastest 100 meters runner, or you look at Lennox Lewis or whoever you might be, or Tiger Woods in golf. So my, my, my conversation with young people is when given a fair chance to compete, when we are all the judges, as in we watch a race and we say, you've got to run from here to here and it's 100 meters and whoever goes through first wins. Usain Bolt doesn't run a race and then we wait two days to hear behind closed doors who won that race. We can see who won. Mm. If Lennox Lewis knocks you out, Lennox Lewis is won. But in terms of jobs and the high-powered jobs like head teachers, like directors and you know, Fortune 500 companies, you go for an interview and they'll tell you the same thing. We'll come back to you. So we'll go away and we'll deliberate. And I think while we keep that door closed, it can't be fair in terms of it's very difficult for you if you feel well, I didn't get the job and I think I was mistreated it's hard for you to prove it whereas I, I think it's how mm. do we make sure that things are more transparent so actually if somebody doesn't get a job 
let's post the points. Let's be clear about that one CV is better. They've got more experience and they got 10 points for that. You got seven. Ah, you know, you went to this I university like and you got a 2-2. Two, two. That one got a 2-1. And that way, if somebody wins the job and you can see quite clearly, well, actually, I can't complain. He got 110 points. Mm. I got 97. I got, I like it, it, it's very different. And I think we've got to find a way of making things a little bit more fair. And I think that's the harder road so that people of colour who feel they're discriminated against can actually have a look at that for themselves and say, well, actually, that wasn't discrimination. I just need to do more. I need more experience rather than, oh, was it because, you know, I wasn't the right colour as far as somebody else is concerned. But does that level of discrimination happen? Um, does I, it happen as much as we think it happens? I think it does. And I, I, th I think I can only speak from my own of, experience. Of I, I got the gold standard, which is a national qualification for headship. When you get the gold standard, you've got an MPQH, um, which everybody aspires to. I mean, it was a, before it was compulsory to have MPQH to become a head teacher. Now the academies have sort of moved away from that, mm. desirable rather than essential. I've got a master's in education because I've got a master's qualification. And I, I pursued those qualifications to ensure when I applied for a headship, I would be considered. Yet, even with that NPQH, I wasn't invited to interviews. I took wow. a London, London borough uh, to tribunal, London borough of Lewisham. I challenged the fact they did not shortlist me for a job, even though they shortlisted people who were less qualified than me, who I knew about. Yeah. Um, and I went to tribunal to actually challenge that. And eventually, in the course of the tribunal, I got the job at Richmond Park Academy. But it, it, I think if you meet the requirements, you should be shortlisted. Mm. If you then don't get the job, That's fine. Yeah, Otherwise, you. it makes it a bit of a nonsense to say, get this national qualification for headship, which shows us you've got all the, um, the, the key attributes to be ahead, but yet we won't interview you when you apply for a job. Is that, is that racism or is that like a, what's the word, unconscious bias? bias? Yeah, yeah. Is that what it is? Even like with, say, everything what's happened with uh, George Floyd and stuff, and you'd be like, well, people are like, oh, that's not, that's not straight racism, you yeah. know, they're not being racist, but then is, there's a big level of unconscious bias, mm. right? Mm. And there, there's a lot of research, a lot of stuff that goes into it, and actually it does exist. Yeah. Is, do you think it comes down to, um, it's not hatred, it's not racism, but yeah. it's that unconscious bias was making the decision? I think whatever we term it as, whether it's unconscious bias or racism... Is it the same thing? I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, it is, it is difficult because I think sometimes people... Um, say things without actually thinking back about the impact and I think mm -hmm. we've got to now become a society where we listen to impact where you might say a word flippantly but it's how somebody else receives it that should be more considered oh, rather than okay. oh, I didn't mean to say that well you might not have meant to say that but how did somebody feel receiving it and I think that's where we've probably got to get to uh, and if you're not that person you might never understand how they feel about what you've said and I think it's 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 high time now we started listening to people because i'm not bitter about my experience but i i'm not bitter maybe because i am in this position now and i've been able to move on from it yeah. what about the other people who applied did the right things and actually didn't get the justification or didn't quite understand why didn't i get the job you know so yeah i, I think wh whatever we term it as we've got to get to the point where we allow people who feel mistreated or um um, uh, they've been at the end of racist treatment to speak their truth. And I think that's one thing that like George to. Floyd... And, and be allowed to. And, and don't yes. feel like you can't. Yeah. yeah. And, not, and you're not labelling anybody, no. you know, and saying, oh, well, I think that person's racist, but this is what was said and this is how I felt about it. And I think that's got to be respected a lot more than we currently do. it's just do. about having open conversations yes. as well, yeah. just like this. Yeah, and not being scared to talk no, about it. No, I don't think yeah. a lot of people on this type of platform would, would do it, but I think it's so necessary. Yeah. Um, but moving on, right? Man like MJ. <laughs> Michael Jordan. I was never a Michael Jordan fan. Was you not? Absolutely not. I despised Michael Jordan. What? Uh, I did. He was a great player. We know he was a bloody greatest player. But I was an Isaiah Thomas fan. 11 oh, Detroit did... Pistons. Oh, okay. Yeah, I grew up because of my point guard mindset. And at the time, the Isaiah Thomas. He got a bad rap on the, the bad last, boys. He got a bad rap on last dance. Oh, he did. But I think everybody understood. He was kept out of the dream team. There is no way Isaiah Thomas shouldn't have been. So Isaiah Zeke. We know you should have been on the dream team. We accept that. But he was a phenomenal competitor. And I mean, he probably should have won four NBA titles and he won back to back with a team that was unfancied. Mm. Um, and Detroit was all about hard work and actually that perseverance. And I mean, they were able to shut down Michael Jordan for a couple of years, but everybody accepts Michael was the greatest. Um, but yeah, for me, I was a Detroit fan. So Isaiah Thomas over Michael Jordan any day. Not saying, you know, Zeke is a better player. Do you player. think there's a cost, a cost to be the boss, right? 
So when they asked Michael Jordan, they said, yeah. would you say you're a good person? Yeah. Or something, and he yeah. went off crying. Yeah, he did. That was quite emotional watching yeah, that. Was. On the last Why? Why do you think that was? Yeah, I think because deep down he was relentless. And I, I think he understood that his relentless drive probably crushed some people on the way to that you know six titles and being Mm. the supreme best and i think as leaders we all have to be mindful of that that some people are not as driven as we are some people just want to come into work teach box standard lessons and go home Mm. you know and so that's that's a hard one especially with me i've got like young kids and you know i feel like i'm working and if somebody's not got the same energy yeah or when i used to members of my staff and things before how are you tired yeah yeah yeah, you're 20 years old yeah. you have no kids you've been what how are you yeah. tired but then it's actually it's about that awareness it's yeah, about yeah. maturity it's where they've come from you yeah, know it's, it's understanding we're not all on the same journey and yeah, I think as a school leader that's the most important thing do you have kids? yes I've got I've got two kids two yes. kids yeah. how is it balancing work life and uh, very difficult um, if I'm honest I make up for it on holidays I think that's the time I really do spend quality time Phone with off the kids oh yeah yeah I love to travel with the kids because again I want to show them the world early doors i want them to see amazing what the world is like so that they can make their own judgments i mean it's like um um i i visited a lot of um, um uh, muslim countries and you read might read a lot of things about muslims but until you've gone to somewhere like the gambia or egypt and you see the brotherhood mm. then you realize well actually that's not what i thought these people were like you know he's got no food but he wants to share his food with me you know so it gives you a different mindset where you're not so influenced by somebody else's it's perception all, it's all it's all perception that's yeah. that's it yeah. yeah and that's that's the problem in i think in the world is yeah. everyone wants to take everything for all it is and they just want to find a story to fit their narrative. narrative they yeah. pick anything yeah. out to fit their narrative to yeah. make sure that they are right america is totally split now and you could you're do either that either cnn or your fox and if you yes, watch a right. news report and i sometimes will watch half an hour of fox and watch half an hour of cnn and you're hearing the same headlines but the way they present it ah, really you just think wow you know did he really say that you know one would make de- uh, demon out of donald trump and another one would make him a hero and you're like but he's the mm. same person do you know you can drink bleach and it gets rid of coronavirus <laughs> do you know that <laughs> i don't i don't want to try definitely not what, but yes. what, how did you take the, being a big basketball fan and it hit me quite hard even though I'm not a massive basketball fan but I love individuals the news of Kobe Bryant oh yeah um, devastating um, news for us as a basketball community because Kobe probably came closest to Michael Jordan in terms of his single-mindedness. Yeah, Yeah. and he learned a lot from Michael Jordan. And I think if you think about what Kobe did with his life, and you know, going straight from high school to the NBA and dominating for the years he did, Mm. trying to live up to that and gaining five titles and you know, winning with you know Shaq, obviously him and Shaq are forever going to be linked. It's always sad when something tragic like that happens. His daughter too. Yeah, and his daughter obviously uh, passing with him, and the pilot and everybody else who was on that helicopter. So. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a hoax act at first, actually. Uh, you, see, you see it on Twitter all the time, yeah. don't you? Rest in peace, somebody. Yeah. Rest in peace. Like, yeah. No, no, not Kobe. Nah, not the member. I, I remember know? that. Yeah, I literally remember receiving that new, that news, right? Yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to wrap this up in a minute. But I want to say, if you could sit down with any three people, dead or alive, <laughs> right? It can't be a family member. Yeah. What three people would it be? Well, Steve Biko, definitely. I mean, Steve Biko, South African freedom fighter, um, civil rights leader, and obviously he died in prison during the apartheid regime. And he was the forebearer for for what um, South Africa has become now in terms of getting apartheid to come to an end. So definitely uh, him. Um, I think Jesse Owens. Um, because I mean, w- what is really sad about Jesse's life as he was, you know, you know, four gold medals in an Olympic game. I mean, absolutely amazing running, uh, in Hitler's Germany during the 1936 Olympic games, winning those medals and Hitler walking out the stadium rather than giving him a medal because he didn't want really? to be the one to place a medal on a, on a black athlete. And I mean, in the end of his life, he, you know, became a bit of a caricature running against horses to raise money because professionally he wasn't getting uh, the money, but wow. somebody like Jesse, oh, would have been absolutely amazing and maybe controversially uh, Robert Mugabe who um, was the president of Zimbabwe because I was in Zimbabwe in 1986 when he was the prime minister not the president in his old age he got a little bit senile understandably but 
what he did for the liberation of Zimbabwe, and he was a an African icon. And to see him on wine then became become a little bit of a caricature, and his wife sort of become a bit more dominant. I would love to have a conversation with him because he was very very intellectual, um, Robert Mugabe, and he could hold a conversation with Amazing. the best of them. So he would be one I would love to have a a. a a conversation with to see what it was like for him being a freedom fighter and elevating himself to being you know the the president Mm. of zimbabwe okay and finally what advice would you give me to grow what i'm doing apart from bringing me into your school yeah no i think i think what you what you do in terms of reaching out to young people is amazing i think the more avenues we can have for young people to hear another voice because sometimes you tell them the right thing but they've mm-hmm. heard your voice a lot yeah, so oh gosh that's my mum again that's my dad again yeah, oh that's my teacher again so uh, when they can hear from somebody else saying the same message sometimes it has the biggest impact so I mean that's what I believe that the more of us who collectively invest in young mm. people the better it will be for our world that's the reason why I do the podcast yeah is because I'll cut certain things up and yes, on LinkedIn, yes, on Twitter, it's all teachers. Yeah. But I've got what, 6,000, 7,000 people on my Instagram. I've got a couple thousand on my YouTube and stuff like that. And they're yeah. all teenagers. Yeah. So for me, it's about sharing that yeah, different perspective, yeah. you know, from the from literally the bottom up, top down, you name it. Yeah. And that's really what I'm trying to do. But anyway, Paul, I just want to say a massive thank you for your time today. No, it's been I my honestly pleasure. feel you're an absolute legend. Uh, thank and you. I hope that you continue to stay in education and do what you're doing because you've got so much experience and i think you're very humble but you've also got that hunger in your belly where you're going to change the game yeah that's that's the plan i think it's it's a calling and i think we should answer the calling when it comes and not question it because Mm. sometimes you second guess yourself i say don't question it if you think you're doing the right thing for the right reasons keep on doing it Mm. and your your audience will find you as they say and you know i'm very humble that you've come to the school and i'm you know for me i don't do a lot of media i know Uh, you said i I caught you on the right day yeah you caught me on the right day i don't do a lot of media because i think while you're building you need to focus on the building of course and um i want this school to be outstanding so actually the way we've built it will mean other people can say well if they can build a school from inside out based on character based on the young people themselves then other people might be brave enough to say well they've done it at at Mm. woodcote high school we can also replicate that model. And you can also school. tell by the receptionist at school, I yeah. say, when I go into a school and just even your receptionist was yeah. lovely and yeah. very helpful. And now I we've think, got some lovely people. But that, yeah. that yeah. is so needed and so necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I've been to some schools and they're like, yeah, just sign your name there and sit yeah. down. Yeah. They haven't said, who are you here for? for yeah. And then I'm sat there for 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. What's going on? And then they yeah. say, oh, who are you here to Before, see? Yeah. Actually, the head teacher. Oh, oh yeah. um, let me uh, let me call him. Yeah. But um, yeah, once again, thank you for your time. Now, my I pleasure. generally appreciate it. Um, but there you go, guys. Um, another great episode of the Dreams to Reality podcast. I really enjoyed this one. As mentioned on the vlog from the very beginning, um, I think when you can kind of connect sports with education, you're definitely onto a winning formula. Agreed. Um, but remember, right, there's, there's two sides. You can either have excuses or you can have results, but you cannot have both. So make sure you give this video a like, a comment, a share, and I'll see you on the next episode. Until then, peace.